0: Welcome to red couch manx i'm vivek jacob joined by carl mascaranis and of course the match breakdowns are over but we have plenty of footy to talk about plenty of manchester united to talk about we're gonna get into joel glazer's united fan forum we are gonna get into some transfer talk the united players at the euros the united players at copa america and the big topic of discussion will be as we said we're gonna Do a bunch of player reviews, but we're going to start with the manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and how he fared over the course of the season. you excited for this one, Carl?
1: Definitely. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. And I think some of our listeners, when I've spoken to them, they've also been looking forward to seeing where we kind of rate some of the different performances. Do we consider this season a success or a failure? And you know what, just breaking it down past the surface level, because on the surface, obviously bad taste in your mouth with the way things ended. We didn't get that Europa trophy that we wanted to, but you know, there's a lot of good things that came out of the season and rewinding all the way back to September, we need to re-jog some memories on what actually happened and what Ole had to work with. So definitely looking forward to having the discussion, Vivek. Why don't we start right there,
0: Carl? we had that post-match interview with Ole where he was asked if he would consider this season a success. And he bluntly said, no. Do you agree with that assessment? I agree with the assessment.
1: I don't know if it's as blunt as he made it out to be. (laughs) I think, I think he had to say that given what just happened and to make sure the fans retained the faith, but you got to break it down a little bit. So Let's remember the pandemic season ended. United had a two-week break. No preseason. So coming into this season, you know that the legs are not quite going to be there probably in the last two months of the season. Now, what worked in our favor is that the last two months of the season for us were on cruise control, if we're being honest. Uh, (laughs) There's no way we could have won the league. Man City were too far ahead. Below us, it could have been twitchy. However, we seem to be having this theme of late where all the teams fighting for the top four seem to not want to be in there. There's just losses, unexpected results. United managed to maintain some form of consistency all because of their away form where they didn't lose the whole season. That really helped them because if they were losing at, at home like they were and away, we could be having a completely different conversation right now. Okay. So you had the lack of preseason. The second big thing is that Ole didn't get any of his signings that he wanted. None of the first choice signings. That is massive when you are evaluating a manager. Because what do you want to do? Has a manager improved on previous results? Yes, Ole did. He got third place last season and he got second place this season. Now what actually takes you to the next level? It's the signings, what you do with the squad. Do you get more depth? Because guess what? Your competition, they're strengthening the whole time. Chelsea spent like over 200 million pounds and they finished in fourth, which is what they finished in the previous season. So we're using that as a frame of reference. Then this is definitely a successful season. However, we want to win a trophy. It's been a long time since we won a trophy. And this is why I have a hesitation in saying that this is a successful season because we didn't win any trophy. What are your thoughts, Vivek?
0: I disagreed with his answer. I agree with that being what he had to say publicly. If you asked him privately that question, I think he might have a different answer. And if he's just having a meeting with the Glazers, because as you pointed out, they were very successful in the league they crashed out of the Champions League in a group that included the previous year's finalist and semifinalist. You lost to Man City in the League Cup semifinals. There's no shame in that. What would be a disappointment is the way they lost to Leicester City in the quarterfinals, Mm -hmm. the way they lost to Villarreal in the Europa League final. The other thing I look at is, you mentioned the difficult start that they had. Premier League, first six matches, two wins, one draw, three losses. Including, obviously, that hammering 6-1 against Tottenham. You mentioned the last few games of the season were very insignificant. One win, one draw, the two losses to Leicester and Liverpool. In between, they won 18 matches, they drew nine, and they lost once over 28 matches they lost once. Remember a while ago, I said when you wanna look at a team's success, most teams, if they get at least two points per match, they're really good. And they definitely get into the top four spots. You look specifically at those 28 matches in between, United got 63 points. They got 11 points from those other 10 matches, They got 63 points from those 28 matches. That's close to 2.3 points per match. Mm -hmm. The question becomes, how does 28 become 38? And that's where you get into, does Jaden Sancho happen? Does Pau Torres happen? Does Declan Rice happen? Let's get into the negative a little bit, okay? Because we want to evaluate this fairly. When you look at what happened in the Champions League, after doing the hard yards, beating PSG in Paris, that lopsided win over RB Leipzig with Marcus Rashford scoring a hat-trick, which Matthew Shinetti was kind enough to join us for the podcast for. Mm -hmm. And then they're supposed to have two matches against Istanbul where they take care of business and they fall apart in that third match, which sets the wheels in motion for what happened later. That is where you start to get into how do they throw themselves out of these positions, right? You think about where United were in the Champions League, complete collapse. You think about where United should have been in that quarterfinals against Leicester City, underperformed. You think about where United should have been in that final against Villarreal, underperformed. So what is happening there where the players on the pitch aren't performing to expectations? Has Ole not been good enough?
1: That's a good question, Vivek. And, you know, during my analysis of Ole, I was trying to break down, because at the end of the day, I was going to ask you, rating Ole from 1 to 10, what was your rating going to be? And I was like, that's a little too simplistic. You got to take it a little bit further. So almost breaking it down into different categories that you think make a good manager. And this is where I would love to get your opinion. I had, you know, being a good man manager. So how can you get your team up for a game before the game or after a tough loss, get them up for the next game? So that's one of the criteria. A second criteria is your tactics. And when I say tactics, I mean before the game, what your tactics are. And then in-game tactics is another one. How good are you at reacting to the opposition making their changes or the game isn't going the way you planned? It could be because of injuries or it could be because your players aren't getting up for it, okay? And then the last thing is just your coaching and, and your your set of coaches that help you along the way when it comes to training, when it comes to fitness, when it comes to diet, you know, so that, that uh, larger team. Those are the four categories that I kind of broke down my rating into. Is there any other category that, Vivek, that you potentially think should be included
0: that isn't? No. Uh, maybe a, a, a small category that I would put in there that we expanded into a bigger category is expectations. Hmm. And so what was my expectation going into each match? Did they meet the expectation? So, for, for example, when we talk about Manchester United losing to Man City in the League Cup semifinals... I'm not looking at it and saying this is a failure because I reasonably can recognize that Man City is a superior team and they did what they were supposed to do. If United had won that match, they would have exceeded my expectations. So a quick thing that I'll pull out for you now is because this was another thing that we were tracking over the course of the season. I asked myself... Over the 61 matches that United played this season, how many times did Manchester United meet or exceed my expectations? And over the 61 matches, there were 34 times that they either met or exceeded my expectations. Now, people will say, well, 34, that means 27, they didn't. But what I will say is there were also... 13 matches where I gave them a passable to mediocre performance. And people will ask, okay, what does that mean? I put a passable performance, for example, the match against AS Roma, where away from home, they lose 3-2. But I'm not going to say that's an unacceptable defeat. I'm not going to say that is a nightmare by any means because they did the job in the first leg. So when they've taken care of business six, two, I understand that they're not going to come out like tigers for that second, like Roma are. And so matches like that, I almost just say, Hey, that one, you just put in the uncategorized business. So how many times were they genuinely below par that came out to be 14 matches out of 61. Mm-hmm. If, if it's a truly world class side, you're probably getting that down, you know, under 10% of your matches, right? Like this is over 20%. On the whole, Man City, you look at them in terms of what's unacceptable this season, they, they probably have it under
1: 10%. Unfortunately, one of those was a Champions League final, but we'll leave that alone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so when I assess this squad in terms of where my expectations are, more often than not, they met or exceeded the expectations, which means more often than not, Ole was perfectly adept at his job.
1: And it's important, Vivek, to what is our frame of reference? The frame of reference is the previous season. What was one of the big complaints that we had? United start off game so slowly, and by the time they finally get into it, they don't have enough time to win the game. We saw that really drastically reduced this season. That is an improvement. And I I put that down to his man management of what he's doing, how he's getting the players up. I think that Ole's weakest points is his in-game management and his tactics. And when I say that, the, the reason I'm saying that is there are certain games where you have to play a certain way. If we go back and look at some of those nightmare games, the the Red Bull game where we we needed to just get a point in the Champions League final was one of those games we ended up losing that 3-2 we were down 2-0 after 15 minutes I think Ole got his tactics wrong in that game he played mm-hmm. three at the back Aaron Juan bissaka was all over the shop and in no time Angelino was just exploiting us that's one game where we got our tactics wrong another game Villarreal the final I think we got our tactics wrong again yep. we needed to come up with more vigor Yes, in that game, it's a little different because I do believe that a certain blame lies with the players. They didn't get themselves up for that game,
0: okay? So that that's another game. So just quickly, a little thing you learn from that also is maybe that's the qu- consequence of taking your foot off the gas. Yes, right? Where you're chilling out at the end of that Premier League season and now all of a sudden you have to get geared up for a final.
1: Absolutely. Ba- bang on. And if we, if we just unravel that a little bit more, Vivek... What happened there? I don't think we had the squad to deal with certain things. And so now we're like, hey, I've been playing these guys all the time. Bruno's played like some of the most minutes. Rashford has played some of the most some of the most minutes in the league. Let's give these guys a rest. Unfortunately, you gave it the too much rest, it looked like. And then at the end of the day, couldn't get themselves up for the game. And then there were certain other people who were sitting on the bench weren't getting much game time, and then they suddenly had to be pulled into the game. I mean, you just look at it at the end of the the day, when you weren't getting that response from your starting 11, your strongest 11, he had no one to turn to because they just didn't perform in the previous games where they had the chance. That's unfortunately not on the coach, right? It's on the players. And it's on our scouting staff and uh,
0: the people in charge of buying the players. No, I think you hit the biggest discussion point when it comes to those matches where they fell short. It's him tactically. And it's him not having the awareness to have the right formation, the right players in the right position to get the job done. Now, obviously, some of that is personnel, but I think especially the Villarreal match, it really showed. Because you also had a reference point of those two previous La Liga sides and how easily United dealt with them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is where in my estimation for a basketball analogy, because you know, I love to bring those into the picture.
1: Oh yeah. Oh no doubt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he still needs to show me that he has a Nick Nurse gear and not a Dwayne Casey gear. And those, those, Big matches, those big moments where you're looking to the manager to make a difference. He has not proven to me yet. I'm not saying that he can't, just to this point, he has not shown that he has that level to him.
1: And you know what? Let's compare to some of the other coaches. You look at a Jurgen Klopp, you look at a Pep Guardiola, right? Those are like the upper echelon. What are they able to do in the game? They're able to change formations and get it going where the players know what they're doing. How rigid is Ole with his 4-2-3-1? He just refuses to budge from that. There were several games where if he changed that, the outcome would be different. Yeah, you know what? Like People can say when he brings on Matic, he plays like a third center back. Now, don't give me all that BS. I think that there are games and especially this Villarreal game, I'm going to mention this again. If he played one defensive midfielder and he had Pogba much higher up the pitch, I think that would have been a different result. I don't think he did that, and he didn't do that soon enough. Yeah, you might not have to make any substitutions to get the change. Change your formation, right? And I think you talk about tactically, that's one of the elements. He wasn't able to do that. And I I honestly, to this day, I don't understand why. A contingency plan from him hasn't been developed where if this formation doesn't work, I go to 4-4-2. I
0: haven't seen that. And that's where bravery comes into the picture as well, right? We've seen several times this season where Marcus Rashford is out of form or playing poorly, yet he's not the one coming off the pitch. It's Mason Greenwood because he's the kid and he won't say anything Mm -hmm. and there won't be an issue there, right? little things like that. And then even when I think about that stretch where United had to cope without Harry Maguire, Scott McTominay has been operating as a center back for his country. Mm -hmm. And you think about someone who brings physicality, someone who will be good in the air, someone who can mimic Maguire as much as possible. That would have been an opportunity to think outside the box and say, well, well, Lindelof is not going to do what Harry Maguire does. But we've seen Scott McTominay's leadership. We've seen the way he can be physical, the way he can be vocal. Let's try that out. We've got four meaningless Premier League games. Let's try that out and see how it looks. He was the best player in the final, by the way. So, yeah. (laughs) And, And yet, what did we watch? We watched Victor Lindelof struggle to cope with physicality. And again, we talk about putting players in the best position to succeed. Those are little things where a great manager, a truly great manager, can make those defining calls. Those are the steps that Ole needs to take. Quickly, where are you at with Ole right now? And what do you see as his long-term future?
1: Yeah, so right now I rated him a 6.5 out of 10. I thought his best asset is his man management. He knows how to get the best out of players. Who have been some perennial failures? Luke Shaw, Paul Pogba, with all the previous managers. What has he done? Luke Shaw won, uh, you know, best player of the season for Manchester United. Right? Paul Pogba, completely different player now. He's happy. His agent isn't spouting off nonsense for this, at least this year. Right? So that's his best asset. Where do I see Ole? Like I said before... If he gets the signings that he's supposed to get, maybe even if he gets one out of three, not even two out of three, if he gets one out of three and he doesn't win a trophy, uh, I'd be asking serious questions. So that's where I stand with him. I think he needs to make adjustment adjustments in his coach, uh, in his in his tactics. If that means adding another smart person with experience to his coaching staff, so be it. You can make little tweaks like that. I think that's where I stand with him. Uh, What about yourself?
0: You think he can lead the line? I want him to lead the line. I know I like him enough to want that. But the biggest question mark is those big matches. Those advantageous positions that United have had and then just completely buckled, right? Like, I didn't mention this before, but to an extent, we can also include where United were in the table around Christmas, around New Year's. Mm -hmm. And it very quickly went from being top of the table to not even being in the conversation. So that is the next step. And especially, I'm assuming that he will get at least two, if not three, of the transfer targets that he has in mind. Very optimistic. Especially if that happens, I think this is pretty much a make-or-break season for Ole. If he gets the three signings, I,
1: I 100% agree with you. Whether he gets them, I don't know. I don't have enough faith in in the upper echelon to get those over the line. You look at City, you look at Liverpool. They've already made signings. Yet United is still waiting to close their first one. Their first one <laughs> might be Tom Heaton, who's a free agent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into plenty of uh, player discussions in the episodes to come before we do all those episodes where we go into each player we can do a quick breakdown of the awards that we've been hanging out handing out and Carl you've been maintaining a tally of who we've been awarding the Cantina Collars, the Beckham boots to who was our star of the season who won the most Cantina callers You know, no surprises um, with the name I'm about to say. I was trying to give you a little bit of a drum roll. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) if the mic would have got that.
1: (laughs) I guess we'll find out. But uh, we actually had a tie for the Cantona Caller, believe it or not. Okay. I mean, one of the names is pretty obvious. He goes by the name of Bruno Fernandez. (laughs) But the second one, our most expensive club signing, Paul Pogba. Both tied for seven each which is very impressive for multiple reasons. I mean, Bruno, he's just been on another level, if I'm being honest. And I think we, we rated him at such a high level that if he ever dropped slightly below it, we gave the Cantona call to someone else. So there, there is a case to be made that Bruno could have won more Cantona callers if we had the same level of expectation like we had for everybody else.
0: But Carl, you know, obviously we weren't keeping track uh, until, you know, you tallied them up at the end of the season. How ironic is it that Bruno gets seven, Papa gets seven? The name of the award is Cantona Collar, Eric Cantona, number seven. Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. <laughs> you know, again, you talk about the accomplishments that United have had this season, obviously trophyless, but there were a lot of good moments, and a lot of those good moments... Either had Bruno uh, or Pogba involved, if not both. Some people may be surprised that Pogba is tied with Bruno, but that stretch that he had around the holiday period, that was was the best I've seen him in a United uniform. I mean, he was the best player for United and quite often the best player on either side of the pitch.
1: Hands down, no doubt about it. He single-handedly won us games. Like if we if we had a stat where we're attributing points one based on players, he would be up there. It almost, you know, I I always think back to that Van Persie season where he single-handedly contributed so many points and we won the title. And I wouldn't go as far with Pogba just because he didn't play the whole season. He was injured for about a month or two, but still impressive given just a month before when we were knocked out of the Champions League, some of us were calling that he should be banished to the reserves because of what had taken place with his agent. So I think (laughs) all things considered, that is a monumental
0: turnaround. Hey, I'll raise my hand up too and say before, until he had actually put out that response on Instagram addressing Rayola's comments, I was ready for him to move on as well. I was definitely a part of that but to see the way he led the side after that was incredible quickly carl you know from an attacking standpoint we we, obviously bruno and pogba are attacking players but in terms of who we expect the goals to come from shout out to marcus rashford getting five Cavani, obviously you expect him to be in the mix he gets four and at the back maguire leads the way with four so usual suspects (laughs) across the board
1: yeah no surprises there to be honest with you and you know for all those people who who kind of give Harry Maguire quite a lot of flack I thought after his incident in Greece and the rough start he had at the beginning of the season he's another one that really turned it around and you could see his absence was greatly felt when he wasn't able to
0: play Mm -hmm. and the last thing I guess we can shout out is the fact that uh Henderson in net got more Cantona callers than David De Gea, two to one. So yes. that's another thing that he can put uh, in his arguments for why he should be the starting keeper next season. And I completely agree. I know he's an avid listener of the show.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, Carl, let's uh, move on to some other discussions. I think we've touched on everything that needs to be there with, uh, with regards to uh, Solskjaer, unless you've got any lingering thoughts. What would you have rated Solskjaer out of 10? I'm just curious. I'd probably say 7. Okay. Yep. Yeah, fair enough. So not far away from you. But yeah, solid, but nothing spectacular.
1: And I think the only thing I wanted to add there is, in, in quick summary, like no first choice signings, no preseason. He didn't have a lot of depth. He almost got sacked in around about that November time frame. Mm -hmm. And then he came back from that. And that sacking talk was right around the time where, like you pointed out, Vivek, we had a very poor start in the first six games. We had that shellacking against Tottenham. And that's where the calls grew louder and louder. And he came back from that. And so uh, I definitely wanted to give a a shout out to the strength there and the, the testament to the squad for really fighting behind their
0: manager. Maybe a bit of a sensitive topic in terms of who we're fighting for. I don't think anyone is fighting for the Glazers, but there was an important meeting that happened last Friday, held over Zoom, approximately two hours between Joel Glazer and the Man United Supporters Trust. Some of the things that came out of that, there were a couple of operational notes. There will be new LED floodlights installed. Uh, There'll be new floodlights and pitches for the training ground so that the women's and the academy teams can train at the same location. So that is encouraging. From a Glazer standpoint, he apologized that this is the first time speaking with fans in 16 years. Don't care much for the apology because obviously it's something that's coming retroactively. It's something that's coming as a reaction to how the fans have reacted to the Super League. Uh, He admitted Mm -hmm. the Super League was a mistake. He said the family will pay for any fines levied by the uh, ESL.
1: are they getting that money from? <laughs> yeah.
0: He did admit that commercial interests have come to the forefront too much. And I was happy to hear that. From the conversation, there is uh, a plan to create a fan share scheme involving a new class of shares with equivalent voting rights to the Glazer family. What were your thoughts overall on the meeting? And uh, has it changed in any way how you feel about them?
1: I think actions speak louder than words, Vivek. So I'm going to reserve judgment until I see some of these things being put into action. Some of these renovations, you know, it's not a lot of money at the end of the day. I think it was around about 11 million that they're, they're putting into these renovations. So the biggest thing will be on the fans having a say with this new program that they have? And are they going to be listened to? Or is it, okay, we've checked off that box. Now, okay, you said something. The answer is still no. Move on, right? So
0: that's what I'm looking to see. What about you? Same as you, man. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the actions. Uh, The words, I think the meeting only happens out of necessity and not desire. And so until I see on the pitch and in terms of the transfers and all of that, a real desire to win trophies. I'm not really going to buy it. And, you know, I thought his statements about loving Manchester United and taking defeats hard and all of that was a bunch of BS because I'm thinking of it from my perspective. I love this team. If I owned this team, you know how many matches I would be going to, Mhm. He can't even show up. Yeah, you look at look at some of the owners like Mark Cuban.
1: He you know he loves the Dallas Mavericks cuz he's always there. Like even mm-hmm. the Clippers, Steve Ballmer. Yeah. That guy's like on the other spectrum but still, you know, he shows his support. So yeah.
0: At the very least for the biggest moments, right? Yeah. At the very least for for big matches that are potentially turning points for the club, for the manager, for whoever. If that isn't important to you, then I think that says it all. So, yeah, very much wait and see, in my opinion. We, we mentioned transfer talk. In terms of the rumors that have been going about so far, we've seen talk about Kieran Trippier, and we've seen talk about Jaden Sancho. One of the things that I found interesting on the Sancho side of talks is that Dortmund are apparently trying to hold out again for the $100 million. And mm-hmm. get away from that 80 million. If it is that high, are you still in for Jaden Sancho?
1: Well, it, are you asking me if I'm high or if you think United will do the deal? Would you pay the 100 million for Jaden Sancho? Would you pay? I mean, if it was me, I would reluctantly pay it just because I know how badly we need it. Having said that, you know, Ahmed Diallo is a player, <laughs> I think he has a lot of talent. I still think he's probably about two to three years away. I'm really hoping that doesn't stunt his growth. I do think hundred million is a little excessive. I know Dortmund, what they're trying to do is okay, eighty million up front, twenty million in add-ons. And that seems to be the sticking point at the moment. It's a tough one, but at the end of the day, Vivek, Jaden Sancho is extremely young. So you're probably gonna get your money's worth. So that's the reason why I would pay it.
0: Yeah, fair enough. The only way I would say no is if it impacts the pursuit of a Declan Rice and a Pau Torres. Because I personally view those as bigger needs. If you ask me to cope for one more season with Mason Greenwood starting on that right wing and Ahmad Diallo backing him up, but also having Declan Rice and Pau Torres available, I will live with that. As opposed to having Jaden Sancho, but not having... Declan Rice or Pau Torres. Which brings me to the next point of discussion. Do you find it a bit strange that there has been no noise at all regarding Declan Rice and Pau Torres?
1: I do find it strange. In fact, I'm hearing way more noise about Varane coming to the team instead of Pau Torres. Now, the Pau Torres one, I think us losing to Villarreal and them actually being in the Champions League. It means that Villarreal don't need the cash as badly. So I I, I actually won't be surprised if we don't get him. Mm -hmm. Now, we're also getting much closer to Euro. I think if Pau Torres starts for Spain, his price is going to skyrocket, and we're definitely not getting him. This is why it was so important to do the business early, which they didn't do. I'm way more surprised that Declan Rice hasn't been connected with us in you know the grander scheme of things. It's been relatively quiet. It's more of a suggestion coming from ex-players as opposed to the media. Uh, I wonder if there's some sort of backdoor dealings going on with Jesse Lingard, trying to figure out how that's going to work out because I can't see a way that West Ham give us Declan Rice without asking for Jesse Lingard and cash in return. So that's, that's kind of where I stand on this. Uh, they're being very tight-lipped about it. But fingers crossed that we get the CDM that we need. I haven't seen us linked with too many other people, by the way. So, yeah.
0: And frankly, this is part of why I maintain my skepticism over the Glazers, right? The two names that are being hyped up are the ones that bring hype and you know maybe quell some of the fans, appease some of the fans. Uh, They have obvious commercial value. Mm-hmm. But the ones that maybe don't have that appeal... It's like, okay, we don't we don't need to really prioritize that. Hey, how serious are you about winning? Lastly, Kieran Trippier, we can just quickly touch on. If he comes to Manchester United, is he the starting right back? No, I still give AWB that
1: starting. He's earned it. I do believe this is going to be another Luke Shaw-Teller situation, though. He's going to have someone who's gunning for that spot he's a 30 year old remember so he's not got you know too much time at the top he's also a Burry boy so he's from that area so i don't know if he's a united supporter uh he might be a burnley supporter uh because that's where he played at the end of the day that would be a solid signing it did catch me by surprise though because i didn't think that our priority would be there however atletico is in a bit of trouble when it comes to balancing their books which is why they're probably even entertaining it. He's also a third-year-old Englishman, so if they can get something good for him, why not take it? I've been hearing the number around about 15 million pounds being thrown around. 100% I would do that deal. We need depth in that position. It doesn't look like Ole has that much faith in uh, Diego Dalo. So, you know what?
0: Bring him on. Yep, I think that uh, wraps it up for the transfer talk for now. I'm sure there'll be more by the time we do our next episode. Plenty more. To finish this episode off, Carl, let's talk a little bit about the Euros. Obviously, an exciting time whenever there's a major tournament, major international tournament on the horizon. United have 11 players at the Euros. One is absent now, Donny van de Beek pulling out with injury. And it says that he's been carrying it for a few weeks now. So for those United fans who were calling for Donny Van de Beek to come on as a sub in that Europa final and change the match, him not coming on, that might have been a factor too.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Now, the 11 that are involved, obviously, with England, you have the most representation. You've got Dean Henderson, Harry Maguire. We'll have to see what his fitness status is. Right now, it seems like he'll miss at least the first couple of matches. You've got Luke Shaw, Marcus Rashford. France have Paul Pogba. Portugal have Bruno Fernandes. Scotland have Scott McTominay. Spain have David Gea. Sweden have Victor Lindelof. And Wales have Daniel James and Levitt. If I had to ask you which United player needs a massive performance at the Euros, who would you pick?
1: That is a very tough question. I had a slightly different question for you, but I'll answer your question first. I think the answer would be between Victor Lindelof and Dean Henderson. However, I don't even think Dean Henderson is going to start. I think it's going Mm -hmm. to be Jordan Pickford. So having said that, Victor Lindelof, his spot is on the line with United. Let's be clear with that. And if he doesn't have a good Euro you can kiss that starting spot goodbye it's gone so if there's right now united haven't signed a center back they don't look like they've closed if lindelof has an exceptional tournament it might change one or two minds however if he doesn't i think it's just going to put the final nail in his coffin what about
0: you vivek i agree with you about victor lindelof but the player that I would throw into the mix, and I mean, he might be in a similar situation to Dean Anderson, is David De Gea. Mm. You think about how quickly perception can change at a major tournament. You think about the way that World Cup started for him against Portugal, mm-hmm. and he has that gaff. If he plays, if he has a major tournament, then... All of a sudden, maybe he builds his confidence back. Maybe he's feeling better about himself and that becomes a turning point for him. Other than that, the wild card I will throw into the mix is Daniel James because he will play and it's a situation where they need him to perform. If he can have a big tournament, we'll see if Wales get to play more than three games. But... He is someone that I think could use the confidence boost more than anything. And so he is another that I would shortlist to say, man, from a United standpoint, if he can have a big tournament, it could work wonders for next season, especially when we talk about the potential of maybe not having Jaden Sancho come in.
1: So Vivek, if I just slightly tweak your question. If you had to pick three United players, who do you think is going to have a
0: great tournament? Three United players, I think, will have a great tournament. Paul Pogba will be an automatic for me because I think when he is next to N'Golo Kante, he is free to be the, the player that he is meant to be. And so I think he will have a great tournament. The other player I will choose is Luke Shaw. I think it looks like uh, England will be playing a 3-5-2. And so I think he will fit in well into that. We saw if there was one player who was at least comfortable in that formation, it it was him. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think he'll be just fine. And I think he'll be a very, very important player for England. And the last one, it's almost a bit of a toss-up because there's still... I still have that question mark about Bruno Fernandes in the biggest matches. When you look at him being in the shadow of Cristiano Ronaldo, you look at the difficulty of the group that Portugal have ahead of them, dealing with France, dealing with Germany. I don't know if I would pick him just yet. So my third player to shine, I will go with Scott McTominay. I think he will shine for Scotland. I think. He is in a role where, you know, maybe he'll go unnoticed because of the unlikelihood of them advancing against up against England and Croatia. But I think he will have himself a big three games at a minimum. Who are your big three?
1: So number one on my list was Scott McTominay. I think oh, he's wow. going to absolutely crush it. And I won't be surprised if his best game comes against England.
0: <laughs>
1: I just have a feeling. I had Luke Shaw on my list. Uh, I I didn't have Paul Pogba. I think he's going to have a good tournament. I don't think he's going to have a great tournament. My third name on the list, this is a wild card, is Daniel James. Wow,
0: yeah, I think he's going to have a great tournament. So you've got Wales doing some damage in that group, then. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that
1: you know Wales. They haven't been playing well. They've actually been tipped to not score many goals this tournament at all. And usually, there always seems to be a surprise here and there. They were a surprise in 2016. I think they can do a bit of damage because their team isn't half bad. As long as they can get their tactics right. So, let's see what happens there. I'm I'm very interested to see what happens. And just uh, out of curiosity, Vivek,
0: if you had to pick a team to win it all, who are you picking? I'm picking France. I think, uh, I think they're about to do the double. I just look at them and I think that's the best team in on the planet, let alone Europe, uh, right now.
1: Who's, who's the dark horse.
0: I honestly think Denmark is a dark horse. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think they have a strong team. I think they're very solid. I think they're playing very well. And, uh, I think an underrated aspect for them in the group phase is the fact that they get to play their three games in Copenhagen. Yep. Yeah. So okay. so that would be my dark horse. Obviously, I haven't gone into the machinations of how the knockouts would play out. So obviously, it comes down to <laughs> who they would face uh, in those next rounds. But I fully expect them to advance and and be a problem for whoever they face. Who's your dark horse? Italy. Okay, I guess I didn't consider them a dark horse.
1: Yeah, I guess based on their recent trends of major tournaments and what they've been doing, uh, Italy have been flying under the radar, to be honest with you. I, I'm surprised there isn't more talk about them.
0: They're on this 20-plus unbeaten streak where they've barely conceded a goal. So Yeah, so qualifying, they went through, what was it, the 10 matches, they scored 37 goals, and they conceded four, so... Yeah. um I think like to me, I, I think they're in sort of that favorites category. When you asked me about Dark Horse, I didn't even think of them because I think they're playing that well.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Fair
0: enough. <clears throat> but uh yeah, that's an interesting one. Hey, Carl, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a footy chat without some uh England Netherlands talk before <laughs> the Euros <laughs> begin. Maybe a bit of a friendly wager. Uh who do you think goes further? The Dutch or the English? The Dutch. Okay, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I know I surprised you with that one. The yeah. only reason I'm saying that is because I think England will finish first in their group. They're going to play the second place from the France, Portugal, Hungary Germany. and Germany group. And I don't think they're going to beat any of those teams. That's why I've I've picked the Dutch. If England somehow managed to finish second in their group, then you
0: know what? It could be a different story. Who are you going to pick? <laughs> i was gonna pick the dutch i was i was oh. hoping you know you didn't have that wealth of information <laughs> <laughs> i was it would have been ironic if you picked england yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it, it's it's a strange feeling when you're confident enough in england to win the group comfortably but also fully believing that there's no way they get past a france or a germany Maybe even a Portugal,
1: you know, if they're playing Germany, they're going to lose. That just seems to be the way things go in football.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, we will have to see that. For all our listeners out there, thanks for joining us. Let us know your picks on social media, just hit hit us up and uh, let us know who you've got going uh, for the Euros. A reminder, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Red Couch Banks. If you enjoy the show, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Join us after every match. Make sure you review and rate the show as well. On behalf of Carl and myself, thank you for listening to Red Couch Banks.